Thanks for being with us. Just a reminder, in one hour, we will get the update on what is reopening in B.C. and a timeline on when different businesses and services will be given the green light with different rules and protocols to reopen. And again, we will carry that for you live right here on CKNW. But right now, we want to focus on something that is top of mind for a lot of people, and that is privacy. And if privacy will change, if people will be asked to or be willing to give up some of their privacy, or should they even have to moving forward as we continue to look for a vaccine and try to stop the spread of this coronavirus? Joining me on the line to talk a bit more about this is Michael McAvoy, the BC Privacy Commissioner. Thank you so much for being with us today. Good afternoon, and you're welcome. Uh, we've already seen some changes when it comes to um, privacy, uh, the Privacy Act in this uh, province because of COVID-19. A lot of people raising concerns or questions about the idea of contact tracing, using apps to do this. So what are your thoughts as far as balancing fighting a coronavirus and still having privacy? Well, I don't think it's a zero-sum game. And I think, um, I think there's potential technology tools that can be used uh, to track, and it's not tracking, it's not a surveillance tool, it should be used to basically keep track of contacts, which can then be used to help the public health officer track down people you may not have even been aware of that you may have had contact with uh, for a length of time uh, where, you know, transmission of the disease might be uh, possible. So, the answer to the, the question is, I don't think it's a zero-sum game, and I think if it's done right, if a contact uh, tracing app is done correctly, I think it potentially could uh, benefit the fight against COVID-19. And when you say done correctly, then uh, I, I think do British Columbians then have to take that leap of faith or they have to be comfortable saying that if, that if knowing that if one is chosen, that, that checks and balances are in place and there's been research done to make sure it is the right one? No, uh, British Columbians should not have to take a leap of faith here, and that's one of the reasons that uh, my office is in place. And so uh, we are having discussions with the government about what a a contact tracing app might look like. Um, There are some basic principles I think uh, most uh, BCers would uh, certainly support. It needs to be voluntary. Uh, Anywhere around the world where these uh, things are working uh, well, um, it's voluntary. There are some exceptions, places like China. uh, That's obviously not a place uh, that we want to go as a society. So voluntary so that the public builds uh, trust in it. The other, a couple of other things. One is it's really got to collect the minimum amount of personal information about our citizens that's necessary to fight the virus. And that that information is used for one and only one purpose, and that's to fight uh, COVID-19. So that it not be potentially reused, what people could imagine. That's a, that's a lot of important information collected in one place that might be of interest to law enforcement or other state or private actors. And so I think if the public believes and trusts and there are protections put in place that is only used for that purpose, then I think uh, there will be a greater level of trust. Uh, And at the end of the day, when the epidemic is over, as we all hope it will be at uh, at some point in in the near future, hopefully, uh, that that information has gotten rid of, that it's destroyed because it's no longer uh, necessary. So those are some of the basic principles I think you've put in place uh, that I think would build public trust with uh, with a con- uh, contact uh, tracking app.
Is it, I guess, one of the questions being then, like you said, it it didn't have to access more information than necessary to to get what's needed to fight the virus. Uh, But then there's the question of would it be anonymous in that you would know that this person's had contact, but you might not know, but the people looking at the data wouldn't know who that person was. But then how do you contact the people to tell them? Right. And so there are kind of two models, uh, one model being uh, it's what's called a decentralized system. And this is one being advocated by Apple and Google, who have been working together on building a privacy uh, protective application. Uh, basically, what happens, depending on the parameters of the app, if you're, say, within six feet of somebody for more than 20 minutes, uh, your computer, that, that person's uh, 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 if I put it in terms of a token, may be dropped on your phone. And you'll collect all of these contacts over time. And then if you test positive, that would be uploaded into the cloud. And all of those people uh, in your contact list would effectively be notified, essentially by uh, an automated system in the cloud. That's one way of doing it. Uh, so that, uh, And you would know that you had been in contact with somebody who tested positive sometime in the last couple of weeks. Another way of doing it, Uh, which is what's happening in Alberta, Uh, it's happening in Singapore and Australia, is that rather than uploading it to the cloud to be sent out, it would be uploaded to the public health authority. The public health authority would then have a list of all all of those tokens. They would have a way, um, depending on what information you uploaded to get the app in the first place. In Singapore, for example, it's simply your telephone number. So the public health officer uh, would then contact you by uh, by telephone to tell you that you may be at risk. Um, so different models, and uh, those are the kinds of things that uh, I think the province is is uh, considering and looking at. And and do you think being voluntary? Do you think then it, that if you can reassure people that that's how it's being used and their their information isn't being taken or used for any other purpose, that that will help in getting more people that would be okay signing on to this? Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's absolutely critical because without the trust, you won't have people signing on. And uh, what experts tell us uh, is that you need somewhere between probably 50 to 75% of your population to download the app to make it in any way useful for the public health officer um, to be able to, um, to track uh, in, in a way that has any value. So uh, without the trust, obviously, you're not going to get that uptake. I can say, for example, that in Singapore, um, the the uptake has actually not been very good, uh, 17 or 20 percent only. Um, why that is, I'm not quite sure, but clearly there is a there's a trust factor there between the the public and uh, and the public authorities. So it, to make it work, uh, trust is absolutely uh, vital. And is that kind of what we're seeing in Alberta, or Alberta trying this out? And are we watching what's happening there to figure out what we might do in this province? Yes, we are watching Alberta. I've, I'm in close contact with my colleague, Commissioner Clayton, in Alberta. Um, it, it's too early to tell uh, exactly what uptake uh, they're going to have. I think they had about 100,000 people downloading the app in the first uh, day. But um, uh, uh, the commissioner in Alberta, I think, has indicated that there there are some privacy protective uh, features with that app. I don't think she's finished doing her privacy impact assessment, but... Um, uh, we're going to watch that, I think, very closely. And is there a time frame or uh, when you say you've been talking with other authorities in B.C., is there a time frame that we're looking at in B.C. that would be kind of the best time if we're going to do this to get the app up and running? 
That's a that's a question I think you best put to uh, the, the provincial government. Um, uh, our role is to, and my role as commissioner is to uh, provide comment uh, to ensure that the uh, privacy protections for British Columbia are in place if this is a path they're going to uh, go down. And from there, it's uh, for the province to determine what, uh, what if anything, uh, this app, uh, if, if they're going to go this route, uh, what that app will uh, be composed of. Uh, but it sounds like you're confident that there is a way to do this and still maintain the privacy standards that, that we need and, and require. I believe it. I believe it is. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think it's a zero-sum, a win-lose situation. I think you can have the best of technology uh, with, uh, with people's uh, personal information being properly protected uh, to ultimately serve the public good and the public health. All right, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for making some time for us today. I really appreciate it. You're welcome, Jill. But first, one of the big questions, will restaurants be addressed in today's announcement at three? And if so, what will we learn about the possible reopening of dine-in services in this province? So let's check in with Ian Tostenson once again, the CEO of the BC Food and Restaurant Association. Thanks for being back on the show. Well, thanks for having me, Jill. How are you doing? Uh, very well. How about you? Uh, pretty good. Managing the chaos. That's the word. <laughs> that's what you're... <laughs> it's, it, it's not great. It's not perfect. It's managing the chaos. But we're, we're making some progress, so... Absolutely, because you're on the task force that's looking at this, and I know you, you don't have an advanced copy of what we're seeing at 3 o'clock today. What are you no. hoping if restaurants, if the restaurant industry is addressed by the Premier today, what would you like to see? Well, you know, we've got... We're sidelined with about, I don't know, we talked about the numbers, but I think there are probably 150 or 60,000 people that aren't working. So um, we put this task force together about two weeks ago. We got a report into the Premier last Thursday uh, and to uh, Minister Dix and to uh, Dr. Henry. I understand that that's um, uh, our program that we put together, I think it was 55 restaurants, has been very well received. It's very prescriptive. It's very detailed. And they're only recommendations of best practices. Um, so I think what's probably happened, and I don't have any inside knowledge at all, um, is that I think it will give the, 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 the province, the premier, uh, confidence to start to look at how to open restaurants. It won't, it won't happen. Um, so one of our recommendations was we would come back at 50% capacity and social distance within the restaurants. And so that's the big thing is how to sort of keep people distance and safe. And we can do that easily at 50%. And then the other side of it, um, which was not in the report, but because it's more of a municipal issue, is um, is really forcing the politicians to get bold and uh, innovative with respect to public spaces and patios. So we need to get, Dr. Henry said this too, more people outside and more people on patios would be awesome. So um, Manitoba, they opened and did not allow in-restaurant dining until June 1st, but they did allow patios to open. So we could see, so one thing that could happen is that the province says, okay, let's go patios first because that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, or there could be patios and then some limited dining inside. So I do believe that we'll get some traction. I don't think I don't think it's, I think it's an industry that's going to be. Um, I actually did speak to the premier about this. Um, it was a real honor, and uh, he acknowledges the importance of it in terms of you know public safety, public um, the economy, but also what Dr. Henry says is 
our need to sort of go out and socialize. Like we just got to sometimes break this pattern. And I think we, our industry has a huge responsibility to do that and provide a platform that people can gently go out and start to live a different life than we have been for the last eight weeks. And I think exactly that, like you said, there are so many people that are out of work and that desire for people to get back to that some level of socializing. Do you see it? Every time we talk about this, I get people emailing me and asking, saying, well, how on earth can people in kitchens distance? How does that work? We were chatting actually with the owner of Shambar, and she was talking about the fact they do temperature checks, they wear masks, Mm -hmm. and, and they take these precautions. Are you confident that, say, we do see patios open or we see some level, even the 50% level, that the kitchen staff will be safe? Yeah, because we had the um, um, in the last, what, six weeks, the, the takeout and delivery aspect in restaurants, a lot of them are doing that. And so they, the health departments have been um, been auditing that, the social distancing and making sure and, and um, not being a kitchen guy, but I understand it's going quite well with the, you know, how to operate a kitchen and keeping social distance and keeping, um, you know, sort of sanitation pr- protections along the way. Um, yeah, you're right. I mean, I, I envision, um, well, I, you know, one of, one of the recommendations was that all staff members would be uh, temperature checked every shift. Um, shifts would be isolated. So if you're on shift A, you wouldn't necessarily work in shift B. So if someone in shift A was um, was not feeling well, the whole shift is off work. So we, all those kinds of things are built in. I'm very confident we can deliver on the public safety thing. Um, I, I just, I really think we're going to have some challenges here with respect to the public confidence about uh, doing this. But I believe that's going to, um, the person that's going to help us do that is Dr. Henry, because unless, you know, unless she says something um, that gives us the go, then we're not going anywhere. But I, I believe we do. We have a, our plan sometimes got criticized as being too thorough and, our plan also, Jill, contemplates, um, and this is going to be a really interesting task, but we believe that a restaurant, before they open, have to go through a formal acknowledgement um, that would, will, will help administer with WorkSafe and the health authorities that they acknowledge that they have a responsibility and a new set of protocols and guidelines to follow. And once that is done and acknowledged, then we would send a package out the next day. And in that package would be a sticker that would say something like this restaurant has gone through COVID awareness training or something to make sure that the public, when you go to that restaurant, you know that they've actually spent the time thinking about this and looking at the standards and procedures that they now have to follow. Hmm. So it's going to be a major task, especially if, you know, if we start to open up, uh, which maybe, maybe around the end of May could be sort of a target date that I'm sort of hearing. But I think unless we do those kinds of things, um, and we really what we're doing is we're 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 advancing what all the, the best practices in restaurants right now, and and enhancing them. But you know, restaurants have good practices uh, in general. But it's just that we're going to have to make that way more visible to the public to give them that confidence. And, and there seems to be a bit of a, a sub sector that has uh, that has come about the COVID cleaning and companies that are not certified, but but dub themselves or call themselves a, the su- superior cleaning. And I would imagine that's something that be key, could be used in restaurants as well, that it's not just uh, things have been cleaned under under normal circumstances. They've been cleaned under COVID circumstances. Yeah, right. You're going to have much more sort of once it closes, then yeah, I mean, if you're in the cleaning business, this is going to be great for you because um, there'll be there'll be added um, instances of cleaning when the restaurant closes when, before it reopens and 
Um, so there'll be a whole cycle, and that cycle will be um, um, uh, detailed, um, just like we'll probably, for the first little while, have some control over washrooms and keeping track. You might see in the washroom that the last time was cleaned, or you know, someone standing there saying you can only have two people at once. So if we do that kind of stuff, I think people realize that we are serious about public safety and we can pull this off. And that that's not going to last forever. I mean, that might be what that might be a few weeks or maybe a month. And then as we get more comfortable, then I think gradually we can start to expand the footprint of, because at 50%, uh, most no, no restaurants can make any, any money at 50%, but it's just the beginning part of, the, of you know, getting to a, a different place down the road here. All right. Well, we'll wait and see what's in the announcement today. And Ian, I'm sure we'll talk to you again. Thanks, Jill. Appreciate the call always. Thanks for being with us. Well, a lot of people are hopeful that in the announcement coming at 3 p.m. today, there might be some news on when hair salons and barbershops will reopen. Although I think there's also a lot of hesitation, people wondering what exact measures can be put in place to make sure those services are safe. In the meantime, would you consider a virtual haircut? Well, my next guest is offering them. Farzad Salehi is the owner of Farzad's Barbershop in Yaletown. He's been in the business for more than three decades and joins me on the line now. Farzad, thank you so much for being with us. Hi, thank you for having me. So how did you get this idea? Obviously, your shop had to close down like all of the other shops. How did you get the idea to go ahead and offer up virtual haircuts? You know, to be honest, it was my client's idea. It wasn't my own idea. A client had to message my wife and ask her if I would guide him through FaceTime and show him how he would cut his son and son cut his dad's hair. And that's how he started. Were you hesitant in that it's got to be a big difference from you being in doing the job and knowing exactly what you're doing, trying to explain to somebody how to do it? No, it wasn't actually. It went easier and smoother than I thought. You know, when this thing started, this COVID-19, there was a joke on the internet that somebody had posted that my cleaning lady works from home and she tells me what to do and I do it at home. So I laughed really hard and I, how little I knew I would be doing the same thing, <laughs> guiding people doing haircuts. Yeah. So how, how many virtual haircuts have you done? You know, we, I've done a few. One was from Hawaii, particularly, and uh, I met him on the roadside uh, last year in central Washington, and he was a professor from Hawaii. He, he's been following us on Facebook, and apparently uh, he, uh, he messaged Shelly the same thing. And then after I did uh, guide him, he's cutting his hair, so he had emailed Vancouver Sun, and they have an article on it today on Vancouver Sun. That's, uh, yeah, and I have one appointment today, 5.30. <laughs> and and do you get does it is it stressful for you when you watch somebody cutting hair based on your as you walk them through it? No, actually, I, I'm more impressed how these guys pick it up quickly. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's quick. I don't spend a lot of time. I tell them this is how it works. But uh, like when uh, when uh, one of my clients, uh, his son was cutting his hair. And I heard Jack said, oh, oh, I said, that's the last thing you want your barber to say. Uh, a chunk was gone on the back. So, but we are, we, uh, we guided through and he was, I was so impressed at how quickly that young man picked it up and fixed it and gave his dad a great haircut. I'm, I'm worried if I'm going to lose clients through this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't want to teach people how to be too good at it. <laughs> 
And you know, I don't charge them either. I, they all offering me to to pay money for it. But these people have been supporting me for years and years. And now it's time for me to do that, right? So, and and you know, karma will come back. Well, and you make an interesting point because I was going to ask you with your sh- with your store, the shop shuttered right now for yeah. we don't know for how long. Uh, how how difficult is that for you? You know, uh, in a personal level, is uh, is not that difficult. I was prepared always because being a motorcyclist, I always thought, what if I went down and broke my arm for three months? So how do I pay my rent? I always had that three four months ahead of me, spring somewhere sitting there, and but. Having said that, with people seeing all this through social media, uh, and when I say karma comes back at you, like when I did Chad teach his son do that, he bought 10 haircuts prepaid, $400. Another client today sent another $400. So last month we managed to pay our rent, our all bills from prepaid haircuts, and this month we're going to do that without asking a single person to pay us money. Hmm. They they offering themselves. So that's how when you look after them, they look after you. This this business is about uh, becoming part of people's life. You're you're their barber. You have you must have a hairstylist yourself. You know how the relationship is built. So they care about you. You care about them, and they look after you. Oh, for sure. And I've I've heard of other places too offering you know style uh, personalized coloring kits and doing whatever sure. they can to try and help yeah. their clients out through this for sure. Absolutely. Uh, you have a history, though, as well, I, I, from what I understand, uh, that, you, that you've been offering free haircuts uh, to people. Uh, you were offering them to people at Oppenheimer Park. So this isn't the first time that you've, you've given back to people. No. You know, uh, I, I arrived in this city with 100 bucks in my pocket and no uh, English. And my wife calls it the good old days because I couldn't talk to her. Uh, the thing is, I arrived here with 100 bucks in my pocket and as a refugee. I, I am one of those refugees that uh, came in this country, right, 25 years ago. So I love my city. I love my country. I love my people. And, and there are times that you have to pay back. And then the group of guys that they they doing this, uh, we, we have a group called the Street Talk Barbers. We, are, we go every Sunday. I wish I could go every Sunday, but those guys are there. Uh, somebody is there every Sunday. And it must be hard that we're not there now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, what advice then do you give? I'm guessing when people hear this and read about this, you might be getting more virtual appointments. Uh, I would guess you're going to get more clients of people that want to come and meet you and see you when the shops reopen. What's the number one advice you give people who are about to try and cut a loved one's hair? Uh, you always could cut more. Right. You always could cut more. And if you want to have a uh, you know, if you want to have a haircut, you have to know this is not going to look like your barber's cut and don't try to make it look like your barber cut. You just need to get it shorter. So do as best as you could do it. It's, it's not like you want the result of a barber cut. So I always tell them cut a little and then you could cut more. But if you cut too much all of a sudden, then you can't put it back. <laughs> and, and bottom line, you know, buzz cut doesn't look bad either. I, buzz cut looks good. If you mess it up, you just buzz it up. Oh, exam. Then put on a ball cap and wait for it to grow back. Yeah, <laughs> you don't even need a ball cap. I, uh, I, I myself am bald. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Um, clippers are sold out everywhere. With, if yeah. you're trying to buy them in stores, so clearly people are doing this. What What advice do you give if people? Is there a huge difference? Do you think than using scissors? If you're using scissors around your house or using actual haircutting clippers? Yeah, you know, if you're not going short, you don't need a clipper. 
if you're not buzzing the sides and you're not going to do a fade, you don't need a clipper. If you have a little bit of longer share, I, I, I could, I, I tell clients or people that we do on the FaceTime, I tell them you could use a good paper, uh, paper, paper scissors or a kitchen scissors. You, you just want to cut around the ear and then you put your hands in there and you cut on top of your hand uh, without cutting your knuckles. So, yeah, you know, uh, you know, you don't need a professional staff unless if you really want to get it like a barber cut. That's a different story. Right. And like you said, that's a, that might be a, a lofty goal for people. Your cut, your oh, cut's sure. going to fill the job until this, the shops are open again, but it's not yeah, going to absolutely. look professional. Yeah. yeah, it's true. Yeah. Uh, would you like to see or when would you like to see the shops reopen or do you think you can do that in a, in a safe way? You know, I personally believe in one thing. We have a great team here in BC in the country also uh, working on our COVID-19. And I have one thing, believe in me, when I need a doctor, when I cut my finger, I go to see a doctor. So when I need a doctor, I go to see a doctor. And this is a medical issue. So I'm not listening to my politician. If Dr. Bonnie said open a month later, I open a month later. If she said it's safe, I say it's safe. I trust her. I put my faith in her hand and I respect her, their opinion and their decision. So hopefully from what we're looking into, into it, hopefully would be end of this month or mid-June. All right. We'll, we'll keep watch and see what happens there. Um, Farzad, if people want to book a virtual appointment with you, how do they do that? Well, you know, they could message me on Facebook and uh, uh, message me on Facebook on a barbershop Facebook page. And Shelly, my wife, would reply back to them if, if I'm home. And these days, most of the time I'm home. So I could uh, I could do that for them. Oh, absolutely. Like, uh, you know, uh, and, and some people say, oh, these are some of them are not your client. I say, well, they become your client <laughs> or they will remember you. Like the guy in Hawaii. What do you think he's going to stop by the first time he lands in Vancouver next time? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I believe so. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's just the way it is. It's, it's a human connection. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking some time to talk of with course. us today. Thanks for having us.